lot of ground to cover uh, and not a ton of time before it gets 140 degrees in here. All right, so sit down and let's get into the Bible. Uh, I want to open us in a word of prayer and we're going to jump right in, okay? Um, Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Thank you, um, Heavenly Father, for your word. What a treasure it is to us. It is honey on our lips. It is nourishment for our souls. It is a guidepost for life. And it ushers us to know you, to know who we are, and God, to know what we must do and who we must be in this life. And so, God, would you come and illumine our minds to understand your word? Would you come be a teacher of your word? God, for some of us in here that are particularly hard-hearted or knuckleheads, God, would you just be as simple and straightforward to us, bring us to a conviction of sin such that we might come to a conviction about the cross and about the gospel and that grace may just flood um, this house today. And if there's one that's not saved here, God, I pray today would be the day of salvation, that they would call upon your name and they would be saved. And for my brothers and sisters who do know you, God, would you make us a people of justice who walk humbly with you and that pursue mercy and grace. And so may we be people of righteousness and not of lies. And so God, teach us to live not by lies, but to live by your truth. And so this is your people's who shepherd them now, good shepherd, um, for, for your glory and our good. Um, we just pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. If you've got a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 14. I'm not going to read as I normally do because i got two huge passages um, We've come upon the time at which last week we've talked about Judas, or last couple weeks, Judas as a fake friend who uh, betrayed Jesus. And if you want that teaching, you can get it online. Then we discuss Peter, even a genuine friend, who bails on him the first time it hits the fan. And so some dudes roll up on Jesus with a squad, billy clubs like a, a, a London street gang, And enough of that pressure comes upon us. We discussed Peter's reaction and kind of dissected it. The passage at the end of chapter 14 bleeds into chapter 15. Again, the chapter divisions were added later. This is all one account. And so I'm kind of having to go back and pull this string in order to interpret and understand where Jesus is at in chapter 15, um, 1 through 15. Jesus, we've talked about this, is fulfilling prophecy that has to do with Zechariah chapter 9 through 14. Almost everything from him rolling into town on a donkey to him being struck as a shepherd or treated like a robber, all of these things are incredibly rich in Old Testament theology. And so we've said this and I want to repeat it as often as I can. The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. So if you skip that left side of the book, there is going to be a particular richness about what God is doing in history that you're just going to miss. All right? And so we saw, um, even weeks ago in the triumphal entry, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And he has come as the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, during the Passover festival being inspected by the judges of Israel. And so he's come now to what uh, I would call his arraignment, right? So Jesus is in the back of the police car, in handcuffs, headed to the principal's office, right? Some of you are really goody two-shoes. You've never been arrested, so you don't know what it's like to talk to relatives between glass. And then all the real Baptists in here knows what it's like to be arrested, 
All right? And so this kind of unique pressure, it's like, do I want to be associated with him? We said this last week, some of those closest to Jesus are downgrading their relationship to him. Oh, if, if he's king, I'm cool to be near him. But if he's got handcuffs on, I'm following that kind of Jesus at a distance, right? And so we come to this period of Jesus' life where people are bailing on him. People are like, oh, I don't even know him. He's an acquaintance. He's not a friend. I don't even know that guy. And he's alone, and he's going on trial before the most powerful aristocrats, aristocracy, aristocracy. How do you say that word? Guess it's tomato, tomato, right? Um, Most wealthy, educated, powerful people of his nation and the ruling government that has conquered his people. There is no um, positions of greater clout that he could be put on trial before than what is represented here today. So as he's going before the judge, we're going to see an unbelievable level of miscarriage of justice. Right? And we're consumed with justice as a people, aren't we? I mean, you've watched Judge Judy. I know I have. Right? Don't you? Everybody needs a Judge Judy in their life. I love that show because it just levels justice. It's like we're not going to have like 17 levels of checks and balances. We're just going to have this Jewish lady yell at you uh, and tell you how you're both idiots. Right? Like we watch these shows like Making a Murder where, just, where justice is unsolved mysteries. We watch these shows consumed with crime dramas and court cases. I know you didn't watch Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. You don't even know what I'm talking about. It wasn't a train wreck you couldn't look away from. Or even in our culture, we got the idea of social justice. And social justice is where we put a word right before justice such that it ceases to be justice. And we act as though it's our religion. Right? And so social justice has become a religion for us that where we get our value and we feel like we're better than other people because of which teams politically we ascribe to. And if you don't like the social justice one, some of y'all are obsessed with the Constitution and act like that's a different thing. Right? Oh, was that too close? Right? You ain't even read the Constitution. Right? But you're like obsessed with it. We are a people that think in great terms about justice, and we should. The Bible says we're a people of justice, right? We just don't come to that conversation as humanists or secularists or atheists, starting with ourselves as the definition for that. We start with the God who is just and allow him to define what justice is. Because when you start with us, we're going to pervert that every which way we can until we put to death the Son of God. So, when we come into this passage, I mean, we're talking about habeas corpus laws, arrest laws, things that we take for granted. I I know that you're in Colorado, so you get summoned for juries, what, every month? And and so, 90% of trials in the U.S. are are a jury of peers. They think, oh, what happened? They think that they are superior superior, not equal, superior to Jesus, and they're going to discover that they're not even his equals. And they're going to, they're going to particularly bend justice with this, this commandment that you, you probably remember. If I had to ask you to, to quote the Ten Commandments, the one you're going to nail is probably 
don't bear false witness. And isn't in chapter 14, that's something unbelievably repeated. They're going to tell lies on the person who is himself the truth. Now, I, I need to give you some context because I know many of us are new to the Bible here. Um, so if you got the slides, uh, Parker, and you're not on your cell phone, um, bring up that first. Let's look at a couple things. Let's set some context, and then we're going to talk about justice. How do we function in society? So uh, start with the Sanhedrin, okay, and go to the next one. Uh, it was composed of chiefs, priests, scribes, and elders. Go to the next slide. In the Old Testament, they had a law, a way that God had given them how to execute justice. And it started with Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges. That's an incredibly critical word. It's going to come into our text today. And officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And you shall judge the people with righteous judgment. That's what you're to do. Judge with righteous judgment. And you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. You know what we call that? Lobbyists. They don't exist today, but they had a problem. Um, For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. And that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They were appoint these justices. What's curious about them is that they were similar to Americans. Americans live under a document, the Constitution. It secures our rights and, and, and expectations and laws. We live under a document, but we have judges that interpret that document on a case-by-case basis. It's exactly the same way for them. They had the Torah. They had the law given to them, and then God commanded them to appoint righteous people to interpret case-by-case basis. Go to the next slide. One of the things that Jesus affirms for them that is sometimes hard for us is that while the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these judges were oftentimes corrupt and oftentimes evil, the very office that they hold is meant to be respected. So they would say, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That's a judgment seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. It's like saying whenever they agree with Scripture, like, like go with it. Like they're in a position of power, and when they agree with Moses in the Moses seat, and they're telling you Scripture, go with it. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. It's like once they leave that position, and they go home and beat their wives, or they cheat on their taxes, or they're evil people, it's like don't imitate that. For they preach, but do not practice. Who's ever heard that last little phrase? Right? You think Benjamin Franklin came up with that. Right? So pause here for a second. This isn't the main point, but i got to take a rabbit trail. If you're a parent in here, and you tell your kids, do as I say, not as I do, your parenting is similar to Jesus crucifying rulers who said one thing and lived another. So let's just pump the brakes on that little activity of saying, do as I say, not as I do. Repent and trust the gospel and become the kind of parent that your kids can follow in word and deed. Okay, so this is the system. 
But I want to break it down because they had uh, particular ways in which they expressed passages like this and other passages. So they appointed um, judges. Okay, so in every locality, even outside of Israel, they had frontier places like Cappadocia or Rome. Anywhere that there was 10 men or 10 families, that they had 10 men, they would have a synagogue. So basically, in order to, even to this day, sometimes Jews will have to have 10 men to pray at the Wailing Wall in Israel. Same concept. You need 10 men in order to form a synagogue. Okay, the synagogue is the prototype forerunner of the church and what we're doing here. When they would have 10 men in an area, in order to judge cases among the Jews, they did not want to take it to the pagans. They did not want to take it to civil court. If me and Brandon Coley got in an issue and I wrecked his truck and and we couldn't work that out as Christian brothers and we had to take it to the pagan courts, that brings disgrace upon the church. Does that make sense? This is why in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he says, is there not a wise or righteous person among you who can judge between your cases? In the New Testament, before Christians took issues to the civil courts, they brought it to the church. So let that just put that in your crock pot and let that cook for just a minute. And they would appoint where there's 10 men, three, five, or seven elders. Same exact language that we have in our church of elders. An elder was a judge, and a judge was an elder. A ruler, an elder, a judge, all the same thing. If you've been in this through the series of Mark, when Jairus is a ruler and he comes to Jesus, what that literally means is he's likely the person over the synagogue or overseeing the synagogue and judging cases there. But even he acknowledges there's things that are beyond him and he needs Jesus, which is awesome, right? So you get 10 men, you know, in some corner of the empire called like Utah. And you got 10 of them and you got to have, you know, if you got just 10, you probably had three elders. They always had an odd number to decide cases. They would never have even numbers so that there was never a stalemate. So they kept the number odd. The number got larger. Maybe you had 25 men, so you might have seven elders, but they always kept it odd. Now, you had a town that was larger, a metroplex, let's say like Farmington. And you had 120 believing men in that town. If you had 120, you had a Sanhedrin. Now, a lot of times when you're reading about the Sanhedrin in the Bible, you're talking about the main Sanhedrin or the great Sanhedrin that was in Jerusalem. But every town that's kind of a bigger city that had 120 men, so it's like a larger church, they would set apart 23 at least elders, judges, rulers, in order to adjudicate the cases that came to them. But the same principles applied that God made them to do, they would just do it on the frontier. Then, in Jerusalem, they had the great Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin comes from two roots, which basically means to sit together. And as somebody that's set in 10,000 hours of elder meetings, that's the best description I've ever heard in my whole life, right? It's basically you're having a sit-down. I don't know if anybody uses that language anymore. It's like, we've got to have a sit-down. That's basically what Sanhedrin meant. They got the people who loved God and knew his word together to adjudicate on cases or things that had to happen for oversight of the synagogue or the Sanhedrin. And so this is how they would organize themselves in order to make decisions. The great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, they roughly, this number's not going to add up, so you've got you to bear with me. 
they divided it into 70. There was roughly 24 chief priests, 24 elders, and 24 scribes or Pharisees. Now, that, those three numbers add up to more than 70, all right, for you that know math. All right. So, but roughly, they tried to have that kind of division amongst the 70 inside the great Sanhedrin, which would have been equivalent to the Supreme Court of their day. They wanted 71. The last vote was the high priest. So while everybody was equal in votes, the high priest was the leader of that organization. So they would get 70 amongst scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and elders. And then the last vote, 71, was the high priest. Where did they get these guys? Most of these people were maybe like disciples of great judges or elders or stuff that had come before. Or maybe they were the sons of those people. Or maybe they became great judges in courts in Caesarea or in other towns in Galilee, and then they would get promoted. It's exactly how we do circuit courts in the United States. Like, you get certain local-level courts, and then you go up to circuit courts, and then eventually you get your life torn apart as you get nominated to the Supreme Court. Right? 71, and that's basically this group of people in 14 and 15 that we're talking about. Some of these people got into their position because of political hookups. Like even what we know is that there's two high priests, and I'm going to have to mix between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because different details are included in each of the Gospels. Here's what we know if you take all of the accounts and harmonize them together. There is a three-part trial that is going to happen amongst the Jews, and there's a three-part trial that's going to happen amongst the Gentiles. God is going to use the evil of Jew and Gentile that they want to do of their own will. And he's going to be so good and wise and sovereign that he's going to work it together for the salvation of your soul. Because their evil is going to put him on the cross, but God's power and goodness is going to raise him from the dead. A lot of times we want to talk about, you know, Hebrews, they're Eastern. Romans, they're Western. East and West are coming together here. To kill the Son of God. Left and right. Jew and Gentile. They're going to, between 14 and 15, they're going to conspire together to put to death the Son of God. One of the things about the three-part trial, the first one we have, uh, we know that in his first arraignment, he actually goes to Annas, the high priest, which is confusing because you're like, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. Annas was the high priest... Um, in 6 AD to 15 AD. And what I love about how history describes him, he was wily. He was so um, Magnus Carlsen chess master level at being the high priest, the Romans had to get rid of him. Because he's Bobby Fischer chess politicizing in such a way that the Romans were threatened by him as the high priest. So they got rid of him as the high priest. You say, well, I didn't think that the Rome had that kind of authority. Rome had a sword to their neck. They had all kinds of authority. Anybody that was voted as the high priest from the people had to have the final approval from the Roman proconsul, who at this time is going to be Pontius Pilate. So Annas is the first one, and he's called high priest, so that's confusing. But it shouldn't be. President Clinton, President Bush are still called President Clinton and President Bush. It's a forever title that once you have it, you always have it. 
And guess who Caiaphas is to Annas? It's his son-in-law. It's his son-in-law. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And Jesus will go to Annas, kind of get a a little pre-game trial. Then he'll go twice before the Sanhedrin, the three-part trial. Then he will go to Pilate, to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate for the three-part Gentile trial. Now you're like, well, how could Caiaphas be the son-in-law and be the high priest? Not only that, Annas' own son would also at one point become the high priest because a lot of these people use political hookups to get their positions. Annas is going to interrogate Jesus and ask questions and then pass him off to the rest of the Sanhedrin. He's kind of like the brain trust behind what the Jews are doing. He's the one, the puppet master, the one actually pulling the strings, even though he actually doesn't have the office of high priest. And I know it would be hard for you as Americans to consider that an elected official might have somebody behind them pulling strings. But just, I know this is antiquated. This is so old school. Nobody does this. It's like, uh, just, just stay with me if you can. It's nepotism and all kinds of other stuff. So, here we find in chapter 14, which we've already read, is his arraignment. So let me talk to you a little bit about what couldn't happen. Some ground rules of tradition that they made that was critical for understanding what this trial would look like. One is, once something was a law, there was no exceptions to it. Two, all trials were to be public. You're going to see some problems if you've been with us in Mark. All trials are to be public, and you had, just like in our system, you had to have a prosecution and a defense. You couldn't have any accusation except it had two or three witnesses. Some of you have heard that. A thing is confirmed by two or three witnesses. That's Old Testament law. Much of how we do the justice system in America is based off the Bible. And things that we do, you have no idea, but it's incredibly rooted in these concepts of justice. This idea of bearing false witness is way more important for them than I would even argue for us. Another word for it is perjury. So think about if you live through... Um, baseball in the 90s, like players getting up saying, I didn't use steroids, I just all of a sudden could hit every ball into space, or presidents who said they didn't do something they did, right? Perjury is big time. Even within um, murder accusations or rape accusations, to have a witness that lies under oath in our culture is a serious crime, I would argue in theirs, it's even more serious. Let me give you an example. If you were the last witness that condemned somebody for a crime that they committed, the damning witness, the one that just sealed the case and said, I saw him or her do that, was the person, if it deserved the death penalty, which for Jews was stoning. If they had to do the death penalty on somebody that committed a crime and you were the last witness that that was the damning evidence against them, you had to, listen to this, be the one that cast the first stone. So you're the witness that saw it happen, and it's going to put that guy to murder or that gal to murder. You're the one that has to pick up the first stone and throw it. And it was a level of accountability that you just didn't perjure flippantly. Another way is if something deserved the death penalty and you bore false witness such that that person was going to get some sort of penalty, whatever penalty the person who you lied about and you perjured, you got that penalty. 
Now tell me that wouldn't be a little bit strange in American culture. Right? You get the sentence of the murderer or the rapist or the thief if you lied under oath. I mean, this, they took perjury really seriously. This idea that we get in, in Deuteronomy of don't bear false witness. Why? Because you could ruin somebody's life. So, we're careful. When someone deserved the death penalty um, for a case that they um, judged, they had to give 24 hours of space. Now, in, in today's culture, we give 24 years for somebody to be on death row before we actually do it. They gave 24 hours for new evidence to come forward. Notice where that fits with Jesus's trial. Furthermore, Nobody could be tried at night. They did not have nighttime trials. Yet we see here Jesus' trial has already begun at nighttime. Matter of fact, they wouldn't even um, start it in the evening. They wouldn't even start it after lunch. They would start trials in the morning and they would ask for the elders, the judges, the rulers to have to fast during the trial. And I promise you, if I hadn't eaten in a minute, that's probably not going good for whoever I'm judging, Right? But the thing they didn't want to do, the reason they did that, they never wanted trials going into nighttime where a lot of eyeballs couldn't be on it. Everything was public. Do y'all remember the OJ case? Um, And you felt like everybody was watching OJ Simpson and everybody had an opinion on it. It held, in some ways, that, that, that everybody was ratcheted up. Everybody, because there's so many eyeballs on it. The idea is that the more eyeballs on it, the more accountable they are. So you can't have it at night, because that's shady. And yet that's what they do. Trials are for the daytime. You couldn't have them on major festivals, major holidays, which is exactly where we're at right here in the Jewish calendar. Why? Because God's people should be focusing on what they should be focusing on. It's like everybody else is at the big feast and festival, but we're trying to kill a guy over here. Does that make sense? So you couldn't do it during these festivals. No trial at night. They had to feast. So you got to be over there. Let me put it to you another way. The Jewish trial violated the word of God in order to kill the son of God. In addition to that, it violated their traditions and their conscience and everything that they had set up for themselves to be as just as possible. They just ran right over it in order to get what they want. The same spirit, listen to me on this, the same spirit in us that violates God's law and perverts justice, that same spirit is the same spirit that wants to murder Jesus, the lawgiver. It's not just them. Because I promise you, when you and I have been busted before, we want to bend the rules and look for every loophole, right? I mean, you got kids, right? But that same justice-perverting spirit in them is in us, and that same spirit wants to put Jesus to death and out of our lives. It's, it's sad. 59 through 60, and yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? 
was it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and had no answer. It's ironic that they're witnessing falsely about Jesus, but they want him to stand up and tell the truth. And as Tom Cruise once said, you can't handle the truth. When false witnesses fail, they invite him to condemn himself. They're they're tempting him, they're baiting him to self-incriminate. This is why we plead the Fifth Amendment. You know why that's in there? Because nobody, apart from evidence, can manipulate you to self-incriminate. You can plead the Fifth and not have to testify against yourself. We have that inside of our law for this reason. We're not obligated to be witnesses to our own destruction. By the way, if you're reading this trial and how terrible they're talking about the temple, he said this, he said this, their testimonies don't agree. Jesus is sitting back, it's like, Jesus, will you just tell us what this is? It's like, looks like you guys are doing awesome right now. It's like, I'm just like, I'm just gonna let you roll this. The more you guys talk, the better I look. It's like, I don't need to help you out and step in here. But what they're inviting him to do is to get him talking so that he says something wrong. Right? Toby, tell them what they're supposed to say when they get pulled over by the police. Nothing. (laughs) Right? It's like, what did your pastor teach about today? Well, when we get arrested, we say nothing. It's good. Um, Chrissy, okay, so look. Think about this for a minute. When you feel attacked and you begin to mount your defense and you, begin, you become your own lawyer and you start, you, start, you start making the opposite case, right? Now think about somebody that loves you like your spouse. Your spouse loves you most of the time, okay? And, and you all begin to fight and you have these, there's things that I talk about in marriage counseling all the time. As married folk, you should almost never use the word always and never. Like, you shouldn't look at your spouse and say, you always do this. What? You never do. You should not use the word never unless it's talking about you have never been to the moon. Because they have not. All right? Because what you do when you use always and never is you're exaggerating to elbow drop them from the top reins. You're turning it up a knot. You're not thinking balanced. You're not actually trying to get to a place of agreement and things like that. You're trying to make them feel like total garbage. Amen? No, oh, nobody can be honest in here. It's good. You've never said always and never to your spouse, I know. Right? But those words, what happens with that exaggeration, you, they jump in one ditch and you feel like you have to overcorrect in the other ditch to get it back in the middle of the road, don't you? Have you ever realized how much a miracle it is that Jesus says nothing? That ain't me. Right? Because even with people I love, I feel like I can make a case and say the right words, and I can, I'm a communicator. I can, get this, I can get this through her skull. Right? And then you're just digging a big old huge, like, deeper hole. How about people that hate you? People that look to disqualify you, people that look to to get you fired, people that look for reasons to steal your shine or to bring you down. How about those people? Don't we still feel like we have to defend ourselves? 
as though God's not the judge of the universe and doesn't see all? I'm going to tell you, I struggle with this because I could have been a lawyer, right? I can mount some defenses. Isn't this tough? Temper- Let me say this. In your marriage, is it an option? Is it even an option to call time out and walk away for a bit? Right? You're in your flesh. She's in her flesh. Nothing but bad news is going to happen. Can you even call a time out and say, hey, we just don't need to talk for a minute. Let's just sort this out. One of you usually is a microwave and you've got to fix it right now and the other person's a crock pot and you've got to cook on it for a while and then y'all get together and you just make a bomb. <laughs> right? Is, is taking a breather even an option? How, how about people that hate you? Sometimes when they say lies, the best response is silence. Is that even an option for you? To say nothing, like our Lord Jesus said nothing. High priest comes to him and says, looking for Jesus to bail them out. How do you respond when people are telling lies about you? When people make charges about you without evidence, how do you respond when people are judging you? Right? What the high priest does here is interesting. The high priest asks him a question. On both accounts, between the Jews and the Gentiles, the thing that he responds to, quotes from the Old Testament and Daniel and prophecy about the Messiah, he talks about being the son of the blessed, the Christ, the king. When it comes to that question, he tells him what the Bible says. When Pilate's going to investigate him, he says, are you a king? He says, you say that I am. He affirms that he is a king, both here and with Pilate. And it's, it's interesting what he chooses to respond to and, and the false accusations that he chooses to stay silent to. The high priest hears his response High priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. That's God's name from the Old Testament, the great I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Ironic here. They accuse and project on Jesus the very blasphemy that they're committing against him. In the Old Testament, people would rend their robes to show anguish, lament, grief, okay? So they would rent their robes. It's all through the Old Testament. If you've seen it, something sad happens. It's like, I'm lamenting, I'm mourning. It was an outward expression that my soul is broken and I just ripped my shirt. But in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, it says that the high priest is not to rend their robe except for blasphemy. They're forbidden from just going around ripping their robe all the time, Right? Thank God, right? And they just couldn't do this thing. They couldn't just rip their robe. The high priest ripping his robe is like the man in the highest office saying, what Jesus just said rips me asunder. And he rips his robe. He, he does a bit of theater. He goes uh, for a little bit of virtue signaling to everybody around him. And he does it with like the Hulk Hogan thing, right? If you were in the 80s kids, Right? How many t-shirts bit the dust because Hulk Hogan had a signature move? 
He rips the shirt so that everybody around him knows that there's no greater offense that could be done to his soul than what Jesus is claiming to be. And so he, he signals. And what's ironic about it is that they're accusing him of exactly what they're projecting and actually doing to him. So, first stage of the trial. Jews, three parts. We don't see every part here. You've got to go to the other Gospels in order to see it. Second part of the trial, the Romans. It's the West. It's the Gentiles. It's the pagans. And they're going to kick him over to Pilate. As soon as it was morning, so they've done a trial at night, coming up into the morning, and they send him to this guy named Pilate. Pilate is a military commander. He's a tax collector. And he himself is also a judge. The Jews absolutely hated Pilate and made his job miserable. So here's a uh, sketch of him. Go to the next one. Famous piece of artwork here of Jesus' own trial before Pilate. Okay, go to the next one. Archaeological evidence. You can go to Israel right now and find stones inscribed with Pilate's name. This is not mythology. This happened in history. Don't go to the next one yet. I'll get there in just a second. Pilate had this job of shepherding cats, right? Because really, a few million Jews, who wants that job, right? Get them to do what you want to do. You're a pagan, million gods. They got one god and they're uncompromising. The Jews absolutely hated Pilate. One of the things that he did that started the relationship off on a bad foot is he marched with the Roman standard into Jerusalem. The Jews saw the eagle in the Roman standard as an idolatrous pagan figure, and they brought it into the holy city. It was so bad that, they had, that Pilate had to remove it to Caesarea, which was a town dedicated to Caesar, Caesarea, you get the idea, and put it in a pagan temple. Jews followed him from Jerusalem to Caesarea because of this just being annoying to him. Right? After a couple days of this, Pilate's had enough, and he says, all you Jews... Meet in the Colosseum. That's a red flag for me. I'm just going to put it out there. And they get in the Colosseum, and Pilate surrounds all of the Jews with his army and says, if you don't stop bothering us, I'm going to kill every single one of you. And it said that God's people bent over and bore their necks and said, kill us. And Pilate actually backed down and didn't do it. That's called starting the relationship on foot. Pilate lived in a palace that was designed by Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great was the great builder, built the temple, uh, the fortress Masada in the Judea. He's known as a great egotistical maniac builder. Um, he dies, I believe it's around uh, 4 uh, BC, and his four sons divide his kingdom of Israel. And separate it. And we've talked about one of these, Herod Antipas. And that's who's going to be in this story. That he divides his kingdom amongst these four. But Pilate is the one living in Herod the Great's beautiful Hasmonean um, palace. And so that just frustrates Herod Antipas. Right? Another um, interesting story that we get even from Luke 13. Is that he sends men into the Temple Mount. And kills Jews while they're worshipping. Another one is that Jerusalem and Israel, like Colorado, constantly has water issues. So 
he needed more money to build an aqueduct. So where did he find a whole bunch of money? In the temple. So he goes to the temple and jacks a bunch of money that was Corbin, given to God. And he uses it to build an aqueduct. And the Jews absolutely revolt in an insurrection. And he sends his men in there with clubs and swords and chops them down. Jews hated Pilate. And they made his job a living hell as often as they possibly could. It says even that Herod Antipas was an enemy of Pilate. Because of this, not because he was particularly religious, but because there was a power struggle there. Pilate gets Jesus and has an elevated view of his own authority. Do you not know that I have the power to save you or to kill you? And Jesus says, you have no authority except which is given unto you. He thinks he's the boss, but he's not Tony Danza. Isn't it? Like, he's not the boss here. In Luke 23 and John 18, we get more trial details. And it basically says that the Jews didn't even want him to have a thorough trial, but he said, just trust us. Trust us. We wouldn't deliver him over to you if he wasn't guilty. In the midst of this, they make three accusations against Jesus. One, that he's subverting the nation. Two, that he's not paying taxes. Those are both false. And three, that he's a king. That last one's a bit of a stickler. Rome don't like other kings. So he asks him, are you a king? And that begins the conversation of what is truth for him. His wife, Herod, sorry, Pilate's wife had a dream about this righteous man, Jesus, and said, leave that man alone because I got nightmares happening because of him. Another witness to who Jesus is that he ignores. So brothers, if your wife has a dream, ignore her at your own peril, right? They're stirring up these people. And it says in Luke, Luke and John's account, they're stirring up people even up to Galilee. Pilate hears Galilee and says, oh, that's Herod Antipas' territory. Y'all remember the teaching about Herod Antipas? He's the one that was married to a Nabataean. That's like Indiana Jones Petra era, right? Divorces her to marry his brother's wife, who happens also to be like a cousin. It's some kind of like redneck soap opera thing that's going on, like in this deal. Basically starts a war with the Nabataeans in order to get this woman. John the Baptist, a righteous holy man, calls out this adulterous marriage. And Herod Antipas is the one who cut off John's head. That's who he's sending Jesus to. Herod Antipas is interested. He's like, I, I want to see this great, famous, miracle-working person. And he, he sends him to Herod Antipas because that's Galilee's what he's over. And he was in Jerusalem for the festival. Herod asks him questions, not really interested Dresses him in a robe. Just curious. As I said, Herod Antipas, Pilate, not friends. They're not even Facebook friends. Right? Why were they enemies? Well, one of the things that Pilate did was when he took the palace from Herod the Great, he put Roman shields up in the palace with people's names on it that he said, Herod Antipas, I want you to honor all of these people. Herod Antipas stirred up the religious leaders. See, see that adultery? He's putting... Roman figurines inside of our king's palace. Comes such a thing that the actual Caesar, Tiberius, had to write Pilate and said, take them down and put them in a pagan temple in Caesarea. It is not worth the headache dealing with the Jews. And anybody that has ever been a pastor would say, amen. Right? Some hills not worth dying on. And this is the source of their conflict. But when... Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas, beaten, and Herod 
puts a cloak on him like he's a king and sends him back to Pilate, they become friends is what the scripture says. Why? Because Herod mocks Jesus. He sends Jesus back to Pilate like a meme or like a joke. They're two internet trolls who bond with each other over mocking Jesus. He comes back to Pilate. And Pilate sees that he has committed no crime deserving death. Other gospel says, I see no guilt in him. And yet he still condemns Jesus. It says in history, um, different things from Philo to Tactus to Josephus, different historians of what happened to him. In 36 AD, Rome called Pilate back to Rome. And then they would exile him to the frontier called Gaul. All right? That's like modern day France. Okay? It's part of the frontier. When you got exiled, you went from living in palaces and all of this stuff to living in, in the boonies with like the Germans and the French. Right? And so they exiled him. And history says that it's there that he killed himself. It's interesting that Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and Pilate, who falsely condemned him, both committed suicide. Now, that's, for me, really good history. Let me give you some stuff that's not really good history, but I found fascinating. Legend says that they got his body, and they brought it back to Rome, and they put it in the Tiber River, which comes through Rome, and that evil spirits hated it so much and tormented the region that they eventually went and got that Pilate's body out and took his body to the Rhone River in Vienna. In Vienna, to this day, there's a monument called the Tomb of Pilate. They put his body in that river, but it had like bad juju on it or something. Like it's just bad stuff. So they end up taking it out of there and taking it to Lucerne, uh, Switzerland. Then it says that they didn't want it there in the mountains, so they took it to the mountains, the Sibylline Mountains in Italy, and they threw it in a lake in Italy because everywhere this body went was cursed. Now, I don't believe that actually happened in history. What I actually believe is that they're trying to tell a story with this legend that this curse followed Pilate to his grave. If you bring up the next slide, um, this lake, there's a mountain lake, which crazy, the, it, this part of Italy looks actually like here, doesn't it? That's, that lake is called Lago uh, di Palato, Pilate's Lake. And Roman Catholics have a tradition that every Good Friday, he arises from the lake and washes his hands. Um, which I don't believe. But what I do know is that our decisions with Jesus follow us to our grave. Either a decision as our Lord and Savior to eternally bless us, or our decision to see no guilt in Him and yet reject Him follows us and curses us forever. That's what I do know. Here's what I know about Pilate and about us. Pilate like many of us, want someone else to make the decision about Jesus. Religious rulers, crowds, what do you want? Roman tradition of releasing one, Barabbas or this, it's like, make, they want, he wants somebody else to make this decision because I do not want to be held fully responsible for what I do with Jesus. 
Let somebody else decide and I will go along with it. Just get him out here. Bury him. I don't want to decide. So I'm going to punt. The Sanhedrin on the other side decided who Jesus was without any evidence. Not history, not archaeology, not scripture, not the evidence in the lives of other believers. The Sanhedrin is just going to look at Jesus and say, we don't need any evidence. We don't need to be convinced. We've already prejudged. We got prejudice against Jesus. Um, I have a friend in Durango and uh, not a believer, doesn't grow up in church, doesn't know anything about like Christianity or anything. But I've shared my faith like with her and talked about the centrality of Jesus and how he's changed my life and what he's done. And it, she just doesn't have any, she doesn't, she doesn't have any framework for it. And so sometimes she'll say, well, that's, you know, that's just your religion. Like that's your religion. Kind of throws a kind of a snarky, this is your religion thing. And I just want to come and say, no, it's my life. It's my life. Religion sounds like a hobby. I'm talking about life and truth, meaning your eternal purpose from which God created you for. And slowly by slowly, like she's losing that language to describe, as she watches my witness, she hears my words and sees how, slowly by slowly, she's, do you know that your life is the evidence that helps bring other people to make a decision about Christ. And so she's, she's starting to figure it out. And she may look at it and say no, like Pilate, or she may trust Christ. But she's not going to have an existence where she didn't have evidence. Sanhedrin didn't want it. And some of you are like the Sanhedrin here. You have a foregone conclusion about Jesus. You don't want the evidence because you don't want him to be right. You want him above all things to be wrong so that you can live however you want even if it is absolutely suicidal like Pilate and like Judas. You are judges who want your way and don't want the truth. You will pervert justice. You will ignore scripture. You will sidestep even your traditions and your conscience. You will not obey the law. And you will find excuses to get rid of God in your life. We can call it other things. But we can, might as well just call it what it is. They want to get rid of God in their life. But the empty tomb says to human history, it testifies that Jesus is not going away. You can't bury him and he stay that way. You will, my friends, meet him in court again one day. But it will not be him who is on trial. And what in that day will you plead? What will you plead? 
See, Pilate thought that he was judging. The Sanhedrin thought they were judging Jesus. And it was actually the God of the universe judging them and exposing them as wicked judges. Whose judgment is corrupt. Pilate found no guilt in him, but chose to judge him wrongly anyways. Pilate found no guilt in him, but chose to judge him wrongly anyways. Will you find no guilt in Jesus and do exactly the same thing? So I bring you to a point of decision here today. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you, how are you going to decide about him? Because like Pilate, you can't live off of other people's decisions or other people's faith. You've got to make a decision for yourself. Let me pray for you. If you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross and rose from the grave to give you new life, if you've never called upon his name and surrendered and confessed him and judged him rightly for who he is, do it today. Decide today. Seek him today while he may be found. If you're a Christian here who maybe has people judging them, false accusations flying about you, lies being told about you, maybe today you would find strength and courage in the grace of Jesus to make you strong enough to keep your mouth shut when it needs to stay shut. That's my two prayers for two different groups of people in here. I'm going to pray for you and whatever business you have between you and God, would you just go there? Go to the throne of grace and meet Him and handle your business. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come now and invade here on earth with heaven. Start in our hearts and minds with even one here who has never trusted the King of Heaven as their Messiah, their Lamb, their sacrifice that died so that they might have forgiveness of their sins, including sins of perverting justice. God, for my brothers and sisters here who are maybe under attack from co-workers or friends or family or enemies, or God, would you build a resiliency inside of them that they can speak when they need to speak and they can be silent when they need to be silent. All to the glory of God. And so come, judge of heaven, um, be our ruler, our king, and have your way in this house. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand and respond in worship? Judge with righteous judgment.
Amen? Love you guys. We'll see you next week.